The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study of 2 Thessalonians this morning, and we're going to be looking at just verse 5 this morning. Now, verses 3 through 10 are one sentence in the Greek, and their theme is the second coming of the Lord. Now, as I said in our introductory message on 2 Thessalonians, over a quarter of 1 Thessalonians and nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deal with problems and issues regarding the second coming of Christ. The Thessalonians were enduring persecution because of their faith. Now, Sharon just talked about that, that these young believers there that were suffering were being beaten because of their faith. This still happens today, people. This is not just a biblical incident. We don't see much of this in our country, but it still goes on around the world. So they're suffering. They're under a lot of pressure. And they had been faithful, and they're standing steadfast. But the persecution was intensifying. So in order to encourage them to continue in their endurance, Paul reminds them of the coming of Yeshua, which is their great hope. And the key statement in this text is in verse 7. It says, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. And we'll get to that next week. And then in verse 10, he gives us a briefer statement. He says, when he comes. So the second coming of Yeshua is the theme of these verses. And I think this is one of the most ungetoverable passages in support of preterism when you understand what's going on here. Okay? He's promising these people relief. If they don't have relief yet, mm, something's wrong. Now, in verses 1 and 2, we saw Paul's salutation. He just uses a standard letter format of the first century. Then in verses 3 through 10, Paul describes. <clears throat> His confidence in the believers and confidence in God's judgment of the unbelievers. Now, last week we looked at verses 3 and 4 where uh, Paul basically was just giving thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians, for their faith, for their love, for their endurance in the midst of the persecution. And verses 5 through 10 constitute an expansion of Paul's thoughts on the persecutions the Thessalonians were enduring and the destiny of both the believers and the persecutors. Now this morning, as I said, we're just going to look at verse 5. Now, I start out the week with grand expectations, you know, what what I'm going to do. I'm looking at the text, I'm going over the text, trying to figure out what section, you know. And So I said, I'm going to do verses 5 through 7, that kind of fits together, let's do this. And I got into it, and it's like, by the time I got done with 5, I'm like, I don't have any time left. So, so uh <clears throat> It wasn't intentional, but this is a difficult verse. And hopefully we'll see that, and hopefully I can make some sense of it anyway. We're, we're at least going to try. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When you read that, what's your first thought? What? What is the evidence? Thank you. What is the evidence? He says, this is the evidence. Okay. What is it? What is the evidence? Now, the Greek sentence here is an elliptical construction that demands that the reader supply the words, this is. In other words, this is is not there, but I think the ESV correctly added it here, because it should be. 
Alternatively, the first word in the Greek sentence is evidence. And it may be understood as an accusative, an apposition to some element in the previous verse. So the evidence of this just judgment is found in the previous verse. So if we back up to verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now some say the Thessalonians' suffering was evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I'm thinking, okay, their suffering is evidence of the judgment, righteous judgment. Others say their perseverance and faith in the midst of suffering is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And there are several other views on this text that we're not going to even bother with to get into this morning. But let me just say, this is a difficult text. And the scholars are all over the place on what exactly the interpretation of this verse is. To tell you the truth, after spending days, I would have just liked to have skipped this verse, okay? Um, would you have noticed? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you would have, and I'd have got questions. Uh, what happened to verse 5? Oh, I totally forgot about that one. So let's, uh, <clears throat> let's jump in and see if we can figure out. You know, and that's, uh, I guess, the benefit and the curse of verse-by-verse exposition. You've got to deal with it whether you like it or not, you know? And sometimes you don't like it because it's just difficult, and this is one of them. All right, let's start with this. The primary rule of hermeneutics is what? Analogy of faith is the primary rule, okay? The analogy of faith means that Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, every time I talk about hermeneutics, I say hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. But after all the talk about science lately, I don't know if I can even say that. I mean, you've got to be really careful what you use that word for. And so I don't know if, if it's really a science. It, it are the laws that govern interpretation. Because there are laws to a written document. How do we interpret this? And the analogy of faith just simply says, Scripture interprets Scripture. That means that no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way that renders it in conflict with what's taught elsewhere. That makes sense, doesn't it? If God wrote this book, He's not going to contradict Himself. So we we do that, we look for other passages. Now, another principle of hermeneutics is that the implicit, that which is suggested, though not plainly expressed, is to be interpreted by the explicit, that which is clearly stated. So, when you have a difficult text like this, I think it's wise to try to look elsewhere to see if there's some similar text that may help you understanding this text. So... The ideas presented in our text are really similar to those in Philippians 1, 27 and 28, where Paul speaks of the steadfastness of the church in the face of opposition. Same thing he's talking about here in Thessalonians. That's exactly what's going on in Thessalonica. So let's jump over to Philippians and see if it can help us understand this text. <clears throat> All right. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, in our text in Thessalonians, he's going to be talking about being worthy of the kingdom of God. And here he's talking about being worthy of the gospel. Same thing, of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, worthy behavior here in this text involves perseverance in suffering. Same as it does in our text. 
So hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. Verse 28. He says, Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul wants the Philippians to understand and expect suffering. And he says, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now the word not here is medes in the Greek, and it means in no way. And frightened is paturo. And this verb is only here in the Greek Bible, but outside of the Bible, it's used for a horse running away. So it came to mean be intimidated. So Paul is saying, I don't want you in any way to be intimidated by your opponents. And opponents here is antikemai, and it means to resist, to oppose, to be an enemy. So it, and this enemy here is someone who resists you. They're your enemy. We could translate it this way. In no way intimidated by those who oppose you. Now we have to ask this question. Who was opposing the Philippians? Who are their enemies? I'll wait. Okay. You're right. But, first of all, they, the first persecution they received in Philippi wasn't from the Jews. It was from somebody else. Remember when they founded the church? There's a slave girl following them, and they cast out the python spirit and caused them to lose money. Remember that? Okay, Acts 16, 16. We were going to the place of prayer where we met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Okay? So she has a spirit of divination. The literal Greek here reads, she had a spirit, a python. Now, that's the same word for a python snake. And this referred to the legendary snake in Greek mythology that guarded the Delphic Oracle in central Greece. Apollo supposedly killed this snake, and the snake's spirit dwells in the priestess now. Okay? So a python spirit referred to a spirit that enabled someone to predict the future. Now, that'd be handy, wouldn't it? I'd like to know someone like that. <laughs> I'd like to know some things, okay? But... And these people generally would speak with their mouth closed, uttering words completely out of their control, and they were known as ventriloquists. So they're attacking the apostles because they cost them money. This is the same thing today with the abortionists. They don't like Christians because, hey, you're cutting into our prophet. You start telling people this is murder, this is wrong, this is sin. They don't like to hear that. So we just need to yell it all the more, okay? But that's why it, this is a money thing. That's why they're upset. You're causing us. You got rid of that spirit that was telling the future for us. Now what do we do? All right? So that was their enemies, first of all. But if you go to the letter of Philippians, we see that the persecution was coming from the Jews. Now notice the language Paul used in Philippians 3 2. So much for being nice to people, right? <clears throat> Paul says, Look out for the dogs. And he wasn't talking about real dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So three times he's saying, look out. Look out for these people. And this is, they're all imperatives. He's saying, be on the constant lookout for dogs, for evil workers, for mutilators. And he's got one hostile group in mind, 
describes in three different ways. Who are they? Well, if you compare the word mutilate in verse 2 to the word circumcision in verse 3, you see who he's talking about. The the Judaizers, okay? Now, the Judaizers are a group of people who went around in the first century promoting Judaism. And they were pushing Judaism on the new believers because they were saying, listen, in order to really be a Christian, you have to first come through the door of Judaism. You have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law. Okay, that's the only way you're going to be a Christian. All right. So Paul says they are continually looking out for the mutilators. And the word mutilate here is the Greek word katatome. And there's a pun here in the Greek that's not that clearly seen in the English because the word circumcision in verse 3 is the Greek word paratome. So you have katatome and paratome. Paratome means to cut around. Katatome means to mutilate. Okay? So Paul's saying, we're the paratome. You guys are the katatome. You're the mutilators. All right? So he's calling these Judaizers, you're just physically mutilating people's bodies. It has no spiritual significance. You Jews think that you're the circumcision, but you in fact are the mutilators. Then the adversary of the Philippian Christians was Judaism. I think that's very clear. Until AD 70, the destruction of the temple, the main problem was the relation between the new faith of the Messiah and the old heritage of the Hebrew people. So the Jews just, they hated Christians, and so they're attacking him. And so he goes on and he says, this is a clear sign to, to them, the mutilators, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what exactly does he mean here? Again, this is not all that clear. But the word clear sign here is from the Greek andikos, and it means an omen or a proof. It's a Greek law term. Uh, It speaks of proof obtained by appealing to the facts. In other words, they can look at the facts and it gives them proof. The proof is their destruction. Apolia. And it means destruction. That's a good translation the ESV has here. Paul goes on to say, but of your salvation. Now, salvation here, soteria, In this context, it's talking about deliverance, and it would be better translated deliverance. We see the word salvation, and we always think born again. Okay, that's that's not how it's normally used. It's normally used of deliverance. And so we have to understand that. Soteria, speaking of deliverance. It's a proof to them, a proof of your destruction, but a proof of their deliverance. You're going to be destroyed. They're going to receive deliverance. So what does verse 28 mean? I think he's saying here that God is the author of the gospel. Therefore, those who are striving and suffering for it may expect deliverance from God. And those who oppose it can expect God's judgment. And that's what he's telling them. So don't be discouraged. Don't be frightened by your opponents. Don't be intimidated by them. They're going to be destroyed you are going to see deliverance. Now, I think this is another, a very identical thought is also found in Hebrews, Hebrews 10. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened and endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So again, we have this idea of endurance, 
this idea of sufferings. Something being, sometimes being public, exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's a difficult thing. All right, They joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Can you even fathom that? I'd be saying, come get it, but I got some guns here. We're going to defend all we can, you know. But I mean, they just, they're joyfully. And why did they? It says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. All right, you know that's temporary. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. There again, he's connecting the suffering and the endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Referring to the coming of Christ. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Okay, again, this idea of destruction, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's encouraging these Hebrew believers to hang on. They are suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted. They're they're not allowed to shop in the markets. They're being put out of the synagogues. They're being persecuted because of what they believe. But he says, just hang on, because in a little while, he said, Christ will come. And he's trying to warn them. He goes, listen, if you turn your... If you turn back and go back to Jerusalem, go back to Judaism, you're going to suffer destruction. And again, he's talking about the temple. You go back to that system, it's all going to be wiped out. And destruction here is the same word we found in Philippians, apoleia. It means destruction. If they continue in the faith, they'll save their lives. So again, we see this in a couple places in Scripture. Let's go to one more. I also think that Romans 8 gives us some insight here to the text, because I think it's dealing with the same thing. He says, For I consider that the suffering, again, you see this idea of suffering, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So here it's suffering instead of deliverance. He talks about glory. Now the theme of suffering and glory is the same theme that Paul takes up in Corinthians. In 2.9 he says, As it is written, what no eye has seen, and no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, Paul is quoting here from Isaiah 64, 4. And Isaiah's message was given to encourage the pilgrim community that the suffering they experienced were of little consequence when compared to their future blessing. Though Paul's doing the same thing here in our text. He's trying to encourage them. This verse is not talking about the sufferings of this life. It's not talking about the sufferings of being human. It's not talking about the sufferings we go through for doing, making dumb decisions or doing dumb things. Okay? Paul is talking about the suffering of his time, the eschatological sufferings of the transition period. It was persecution for the cause of Christ. Now, in our text in Romans 8, the glory that Paul said was about to be revealed was the glory of the new covenant age. So Paul told his first century audience that this glory was about to be revealed. This is the word mellow here. All right, so this glory that he's talking about is close. It's about to be revealed. And in verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation here is the Greek katesis. 
And kintesis can be translated creation, as it is here, although I don't think it should be here, creation, or creature. It's depending on the context. It is sometimes used of the physical creation, and it's at times used of men. I think in this text it would better translated creature, because he's not referring to physical creation here. I'm not talking about the rocks and the bugs and the slugs crying out to God. No, he, I think he's referring here to the remnant of Israel, the believing remnant of Israel. Notice what Paul says about this creation, this, this creature, this believing remnant of Old Covenant Israel. He says that they wait. And wait here is from the Greek word apokaradokia. Write that down. Be a test on that later. And weights here is really weak. Because <clears throat> apokaradokia is a word that literally means to stretch the head, to stand on your tiptoes, this intense, like you're looking for something so intensely, you're expecting it at any minute. And the reason they're expecting it because he said it's about to be revealed. So they're waiting and they're looking for this. They're waiting for this to happen. And it talks about their eager longing. And this is from the Greek word apekdekomai, And again, this is an intense word that gives another picture of the intense waiting for the coming of the Lord. So this implies it's going to happen soon. I mean, they're sitting at the window, stretching out, looking, waiting for it to happen. It's about to be revealed. Well, this anxious longing and eager waiting was for the revealing of the sons of God. So what are are they looking for? What's this talking about? They want to know who are the true sons of God. Okay, because Israel claimed to be the son of God, right? And the Christians are saying, no, we're the sons of God. And so they're like, okay, who's the son of God? Well, God's going to reveal who his sons are. All right, now if you, you know, go through the Tanakh, you're going to find out that Israel is frequently identified in both the singular and the plural as God's sons. For example, Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh. Israel is my firstborn son. But in the new covenant, it is no longer racial. The sons of God in the new covenant are those with faith in Messiah. It is only those with faith in Messiah. And in Galatians 3.7, he says, Know that it is those who have faith who are the sons of Abraham. So before it was racial, God had chosen the nation Israel. Now he said it is no longer, it is those with faith. They're the ones who are sons of Abraham. Now, we don't, I think, get the impact of what this would have had to the Jews, how they would have felt about this. I mean, to say that the Christians are sons of God, that would have really upset them. Because they believe that we're God's sons. We're genetically descended from Abraham and everything's okay because of that. They saw themselves as the exclusive children of God. But Yeshua said this to them in Matthew 3, 9. Do not presume to say in yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Don't brag about your heritage. It's not anything to do with that anymore in the new covenant. They saw, the Jews also saw themselves as God's vine because Isaiah said they were in Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. So Israel is God's vineyard. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Now, 
Who did Yeshua say was divine? John 15, 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. So Yeshua is the true vine, meaning he is the true Israelite. He is the true son of God. And all those in only those who put their faith in him were also true sons of God. Now, in Galatians 4, Paul, in the context of talking about the sons of God, says this. This is an important text in Galatians 4. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Again, the Judaizers pushing these people. you got to be under the law. He says, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of a slave woman and one of a free woman. So Abraham's sons, one of them was born a slave, one's born free. They're in bondage to the law. The slave woman is, but he also had a free one. So Paul is contrasting here the two covenants. And he says that right in the text. These are the covenants. Okay? Old and new. That's what the contrast here is. Law is bondage. The gospel is freedom. Notice what Paul says in our text in Romans. He said, but the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation, believing Israel, those who trusted in the Messiah, they're going to be set free from slavery. Back to Galatians 4, 29-31. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. All right? It is right now, because that's what was happening. The Jews were persecuting the Christians. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Well, get rid of them. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, cast out the slave woman. That's physical Israel, who has no heirship in this truth. It is the brethren, it is Christians who are true children of God. And in AD 70, God cast out the slave woman and her sons forever. And He made it very clear to all the world that those who believe in Yeshua the Messiah are the true sons of God. Again, this is the battle. The Jews are saying, we're God's children. The Christians are saying, no, we're God's children now. And God shut down that system and said, we're done with that. No more of that. No more sacrifice. And it's amazing how many people want to support Judaism today. And I'm like, what Judaism? What are they doing? Do they follow the Bible at all? Yeshua said in, in Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, not what jot or tittle is going to change. So either heaven and earth passed away or everything's still the same and ha- nothing is the same. Just go ask the Jew, when's the last time you sacrificed an animal? When's the last time you did that? Because in Israel, you've got to do at least two every day on the normal days. On sacrifices, you know, you get to tabernacles, you've got to sacrifice 70 bulls. But they say, oh, yeah, they just reinvented everything and just kept right on going. Like, let's pretend the Bible's not there because we don't need to pay attention to it at all. We just invent everything and keep going on. It's foolish. It's just absolutely foolish. But I don't know. People seem to be blind to that. Now, please remember that it was the Jews who were the main persecutors, the main instigators of persecution against the Christians throughout most of the first century. Okay, 
The Jews were saying they're the true sons of God. But God said it's the Christians. It's those who believe in Yeshua. And I think this is the idea in our text in 2 Thessalonians 1.5 as well. Okay, so let's see if we can make some sense of this here, all right? So in Philippians, their perseverance in the midst of persecution was a sign of salvation, deliverance, for the Philippians. But the perspective of 2 Thessalonians 1.5 here is somewhat different. The sign or evidence here doesn't point to the salvation of the Thessalonians, but rather to God's judgment that is right. And the immediate antecedent in verse 4 is not their persecutions and trials, but it's rather their perseverance. It's your perseverance, your endurance, is the evidence of God's righteous judgment. Gordon Clark, one of my favorite theologian scholars, says, persecutions and afflictions are not the antecedent. The announcement is your perseverance and faith during your afflictions, and the perseverance is the evidence that God will righteously judge not the unbelievers, but the Thessalonians. If God... Wait, let me back up a little bit here. So, by righteous judge here, that God is going to righteously judge the believers, I think what he means by righteous, righteously judge here is vindicate. You know, we think of judge in a bad way. No, the judge vindicates you. You're right. That's, you're, you're doing the right thing, all right? Clark goes on to say, if God granted endurance to the Thessalonians, it was evidence, or at least an indication, that he'd do more later on. So, and that's what Paul's been stressing. They're thanking God for their endurance because they know God gave them the ability to do that. So the fact that they're enduring persecution and affliction for Christ's sake is the sure token of God's righteous judgment, which will be vindicated in them and in the persecutors at the second coming of Christ. Now that's important, and that's why I wanted to get all these verses together at once, because in verses 6 and 7, he makes it clear when this is going to all happen. We just don't have time to do that. All right, so we'll get into those next week. So you got to remember all this for next week when we tie this together, okay? It will be manifest that they are the sons of God as the Jewish persecutors are judged and destroyed. So those who were persecuting them were doing so because they had not trusted in Christ. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected the gospel. On the other hand, the endurance and faith in such condition was clearly the work of God within their hearts of these believers. In the future, each one is going to be dealt with accordingly. God's going to deal with your persecutors. God's going to deal with you. God's judgment is just when He judges Israel, Jerusalem for their sin, and the Gentiles inherit the kingdom of God. That's soon to happen is what he's saying, and God's going to demonstrate His righteousness when He does that. It is believers that are worthy of the kingdom, not Israel. Israel has rejected the kingdom. And he goes on in this verse, the second half of our verse, he said that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now, considered worthy here is the verb kataxiao, and it means to deem, to declare, to count as worthy. So, maybe considered worthy is an aorist passive infinitive, and the passive voice implies that God the Father is the agent. It does not mean to make worthy. In other words, their endurance demonstrates their worthiness, 
to enter the kingdom. Not, not to enter, so let me take that back, reverse that. Not to enter the kingdom, but they are worthy. Not to enter, but they're worthy of the kingdom they are entering. Alright? Because of their faith in Christ. They, and because of their faith in Christ, I think what he's trying to hint at here is they're going to share the rule and reign of Christ as promised. And we see that promise to faithful believers in several places. Look at Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. So there's a promise of victory, sitting on the throne of God. In 2 Timothy, we have this verse, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign. And I think that's what he's telling these guys. Listen, you just keep faithful in your endurance. It's going to be, it's going to work out, all right? In other words, endurance and suffering produces a blessedness. Our endurance does not earn us a spot in the kingdom, but it demonstrates that we are worthy of the kingdom. Now, this is a difficult text. And and G.K. Beale, who's, you know, a pretty good commentator, pretty good scholar, commenting on may be considered worthy in his commentary, he writes this. Christians are those on behalf of whom Christ has paid the penalty for sin. We all together so far? Is that good? I hate the next word. But. When there's a but after a statement like that, you're like, wait a minute. There's no buts there. That's, that's just it. Christians are those on behalf of whom Christ has paid the penalty of sin. End it. But he's going to throw a but in there. Okay? But. They must have the badge of good works as evidence that Christ paid their purchase price in order to be considered worthy of passing through the final judgment and entering the kingdom. Therefore, both faith in Christ's work and human good works are absolutely necessary for being considered worthy of salvation. Does that bother anybody? If it doesn't bother you, I would say you have a very high view of your own morality. You know? Hey, I'm pretty good. I'm a, yeah, I think some good works are going to get me there. If you know who you are, you're like, that doesn't fit at all. I don't like that, okay? Mm-hmm. You're like, we're in trouble. <clears throat> all right? This is, a, this is common with people. You know, they want to... The gospel just can't be free. Okay, you got to do something if you want to get it. Okay, you must have, you know, it's just it's crazy. So we need to believe in Christ's works on our behalf, and then we have to add good works also. Now, what question should you be asking when someone says good works are necessary for salvation? Okay, how much? That's a good question. But first of all, what are good works? Because, you know, you don't know what they mean. They might mean going to church. I mean, seriously, people have the dumbest idea of what good works are. You know? They really do. So what do you mean by good works? And I would have to define good works as obedience to Christ. Okay? I think that would be a biblical thing that we could stick on, hang on there. All right? So then we need to ask, okay, good works are obedience to Christ. Then we have this question. How much obedience do I need? I've asked preachers this. I love it. You know, when I'm hearing a message and they're preaching on this stuff, I go right back to us. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, you know, and I, I, you know, you're missing heaven by 18 inches. You know, I got it in my head, not my heart. Can you tell me how to get it into my blood pumping organ down here, this muscle in my chest? Can, how can I get it out of my brain into the, 
And they're just like, what are you talking about? That's what you said. You know, you got to have it in your heart. Well, how do you do that? Or if they talk about good works, I'm like, how much good works? How much obedience is necessary? Is 80% good? That seems good. 80%, that's a lot of obedience, right? How about 90, 95? It can't be 100, can it? It is 100. That's what was required. And I would tell them, yeah, obedience is required and it has to be 100%. And they're like, well, no one does that except Christ. So you either got his obedience or you're out of luck, okay? How much obedience is enough? Listen, nobody can answer that question. Because when you go say, okay, I understand my good works are part of me getting into heaven. How many good works? How much obedience? Tell me, because this is heaven or hell. I want to get in. How much? I, I don't want to be an overachiever. Come on. I don't want to have to do too much, but I want to get in. So where's the line? They can't tell you. Nobody can tell you. And <laughs> because nobody can answer that question, which means we never know if we're doing enough. Which means we never know if we're going to make it to heaven. I heard John Piper say, after 40 years of serving the Lord, I don't know if I'm going to make it because I don't know if I'll quit. I'm like, what kind of sad theology is that? That's his lordship. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'll keep being good. Well, if you're counting on your obedience, that's a, that's a sad, sad thing. Okay? That is very subjective. Okay? So you're looking at your life say, I did pretty good today. I guess I'll get in. It's much better to be objective and just, I believe Christ, okay? That's, all right. So is this doctrine of no obedience, no salvation, is this the doctrine of Paul? Is this the ground of justification before God set forth in the New Testament? That's the question. And no, it is not, okay? It is not. For example, Paul in Romans 3.24 says, and are justified... Justified is to be declared righteous before God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua. Now, you can even see it here in the English. Grace and gift. What does grace mean? It's a gift, right? It's, you don't deserve it. It's a gift. You get grace. Well, what does gift mean? Well, why does he say it twice? The word grace here is haris, and it means gift. Okay, that's what grace is. It's a gift. The word gift here is the word doria, and Doria means gratuitously, without cause, freely. So grace as a gift here, the expression is redoubled to show that it's all of God and nothing in this act of justification belongs to or proceeds from man. It's a double gift. It's a gift of grace. Just ask people if they know what a gift is when they talk about this. What is a gift? If I give you a gift, what do, I, what do you got to do for it? Well, if it's a gift, you don't do anything. You just take it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the gift. Now, if i got to earn it, then it's not really a gift, okay? This has got to be one of my favorite verses. We talked about this a little bit last week. Paul, dealing in Romans 5, says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. And so also is the Greek, so also... The one By the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now, the Greek, uh, <clears throat> your assurance of salvation comes not from your works, but from your understanding of your identity, okay? 
Here, here you go. Let's start out. Look at yourself in Adam, if you can do that. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Yesterday, I was with my niece, and she had her daughter, my great niece, four months old, cutest little thing, precious, sweet little thing. And I'm thinking, little ball of depravity. Looks so cute, looks so nice. Evil from the, it, she is a sinner. Why? What did she do? Nothing. She's declared a sinner because she's in Adam. Everybody born in Adam is a sinner. And everybody's born in Adam. All right? So you didn't do anything. You, well, now, same thing. Look at yourself in Christ. What did you do there? Nothing. You're declared righteous. That's the parallel here. We need to get rid of any thoughts that are actions as far as gaining or keeping salvation. But people, most of the church is there. If I got to do this, 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 if I don't do this, I'm out. We're made righteous because of the obedience of Yeshua. That's why I said it takes 100%. He's the only one who is 100% obedient. So by the one man's obedience, not your obedience, not the little piddly things you think you do that are obedient, by one man's obedience, Christ, the many are made righteous. That's why you're righteous, because Yeshua the Christ lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death for you on your behalf. And it's through his obedience and his alone that you're made righteous. That's it. Bottom line. Can't be undone. You can't break what you didn't fix, okay? God fixed it. God chose you, brought you into the family, sacrificed His Son on your behalf, gave you to His Son as a love gift. It's amazing, people, and it's not anything you're going to lose. So get out of that mentality of, i got to do this. Now listen, every time you talk about this, people go, oh, are you saying people can live however they want? You can, if you want to be disciplined by the Lord, if you want to be judged by God. I say it over and over, but still, someone will use a soundbite and make me say, you know, you don't have to do anything. As a Christian, if you're not living righteously, you're in, God's going to deal with you here and now. He's going to make your life a living hell, okay? Because He can do that when you don't live right. Because He's called you as a Christian to honor Him. If you're not doing it, He'll deal with you. It's a temporary thing here in this life. In eternity, you're His child. That's why He's going to deal with you. Because you're His child. Alright? The people whom the Father has given to Christ, it says, are made sinners. Or one given to Christ are made righteous, but He said the others are made sinners. The word made here is kathisteme, and it means to set down in the rank of, or to place in the category of, to appoint to a particular class. The word has the same meaning on both sides of the parallel here. We're made righteous on the grounds of Christ's obedience alone. All right, back to our text. Paul says that they're worthy of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is simply the reign of God. It's not a location. It's not a territory. God reigns in the human heart. The kingdom of God broke into human history in the ministry of Christ. The kingdom was inaugurated at the first coming of Christ. It was consummated at His second coming, and we are in the kingdom now. We're kingdom citizens. And we're to live as kingdom citizens. Now, in these two verses, in verse 4, Paul talks about their persecutions and their afflictions that they're enduring. And in verse 5, he talks about their suffering. Believers 
it is utterly crucial how we respond to suffering in our lives. We saw last week that suffering can cause a believer to fall away if they're not grounded in the Word of God. Because they just get bitter instead of better. Because they think they deserve better. It's a mindset. It's understanding Scripture. And when you understand Scripture, you realize God is God and you're not. And God gets to make the rules and tell you what you're supposed to do. But the Thessalonians were enduring. They're even growing in the midst of this suffering. And we saw last week that suffering is a grace gift from God. Paul told the Philippians, it's not only, you're not only called to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's a grace gift. Now, when you're in the midst of suffering, you're not too thankful for that gift. Okay? <laughs> you're not too thankful. So, it's helpful if we understand the truth of what the Scripture says of benefits of suffering. There are a lot of benefits to suffering in a believer's life. And again, every Sunday they're talking about the persecuted church here and what these believers are going through. And it's just, you know, I think if, if in America, if we had the inclination that somebody might show up at our church service and drag us out and beat us and whip us, we might not have too many people here, okay? It's like, ah, I'm not in for that. But these people are showing up. They're coming to church. They don't care. What do they know that we don't? They just, I think, understand suffering. They're not worried about it. So let me talk to you about the benefits of suffering. First of all, suffering matures us in our practical Christian lives. Suffering is a training tool. God lovingly and faithfully uses suffering to develop personal righteousness, maturity, and to deepen our walk with Him. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in 12, 5, and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Again, get this idea, we're sons, okay? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Now, chastise here is the Greek word, Masagao, and it means to flog, to scourge. It's not real pleasant sounding, okay? And basically, if you look up, you look up any of the lexicons, and they just make, I mean, it's a really brief definition. Most of them just say flog or scourge. That's all they say. That's all that's there. And, and the idea of discipline, that's paiduo. Discipline means tutorage, education or training. So you have these words here, and he's talking about, listen, God brings suffering in your life to train us, to mature us. Verse 6 here from Hebrews 12, you can find the same verse in no less than five different books of the Bible. Look what it says, Proverbs 3.12. Yahweh reproves, that's the same as discipline, him whom he loves. Same idea. How about Job 5.17? Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Psalm 94.12 Blessed is the man whom you discipline. O Yahweh, in whom you teach out of your law. Revelation 3.19 Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. God repeats this so often because I don't think He wants us to forget it. Okay? Because he wants us to have the comfort of realizing that divine chastening proceeds from love. 
That's the same with any parent. If a parent loves their child, they discipline them to protect them, to help them, to mature them. And a a child without discipline, what happens? A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Okay? (laughs) You can see that anywhere you go nowadays, okay? As Kathy's father used to say, the tail's wagging the dog. You know, we got these kids telling parents what to do and how to do it, and it's just... There's no discipline going on anymore, all right? And it's sad, okay? All right, secondly, suffering weans us from self-reliance. This is, this is a, you know, if you don't have a problem at all with self-reliance, you can check out now, okay? You just you don't even listen anymore, but some of you might want to pay attention. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. We, things were so bad, we thought we were going to die. But you know what? God raises the dead. So we just trust Him, and we're good. And you know, so many people have testified that God taught them this lesson, that they are dependent on Him by taking away the things they had mistakenly depended upon. We suffer to bring about a continued dependence on the grace and power of God. Suffering is designed to cause us to walk by His ability, His power, His provision, rather than our own. It causes us to turn from our resources because we don't have any. You know, have you guess God ever taken you to that spot where there's nothing left and you're just like, God, okay, it's just you. I'm dependent on you, God. And it's just, this is a cool text because we despair of life, but God raised the dead, so we're cool. You don't have to worry about it when you're in the presence of God, all right? Thirdly, suffering is an evangelistic tool. You ever thought about that? It's an evangelistic tool. Look at Philippians 1, 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, Paul's in prison, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What? You being put in prison, you being beaten, you being miserable, that's advancing the gospel? So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The, the Praetorian Guard were coming to Christ because Paul is in their handcuffed to him and preaching to him. All right? Listen, and this is when believers handle suffering joyfully and with stability, it becomes a marvelous testimony of the power of Christ in one's life. But conversely, when believers are going through a difficult time and they're whining and crying and being babies, people look at their thought you were a Christian. Well, God doesn't seem to do much for you. I don't want a God that does that, you know? It's when there's victory, when there's, you know, you're standing in the midst of it and you're praising God. When I was going over this, I think of my friend Steve Morgan, who died last year. Steve had a bunch of bouts with cancer, but the, the latest one, he had a brain tumor removed. Shortly after that, he found out there was another tumor that they didn't tell him he had in his brain, and he just said, I'm done. I'm not doing this. They gave him, you know, you got a couple months to live or whatever. And so he just, 
you would have thought he was not going to die, but he was getting ready to go on vacation. Because he was just, it didn't affect him. I mean, literally, once he knew what was happening, it bothered him when he didn't know what was going on. Why am I, why am I speech and talking like this? How come I can't keep a thought? What is going on with me? Once he knew, he's like, I'm going home. And that was it. I mean, and he was just a testimony. You, you couldn't believe to be in his presence that he was, we were with him. We spent a couple of days with him and Shan down there. And when we, he died about 10 days after we left. You would have never known the time we had together. I mean, we just were having fun, talking about the Lord, eating together, just doing things. And it's just, you would have never had a clue that he was getting ready to die. It didn't, it just did not bother him. I mean, and Steve had a relationship with God. He did. And he's like, okay. Oh, sure, he was sad to have to leave his wife and things like, but he didn't. He wasn't moaning. He wasn't, oh, woe is me. Or why me? Why do I got to do, you know, none of that. It's just like he was excited, you know. I'm getting to meet the Lord. It's an evangelistic tool, people. When people see that in Christians, they're like, maybe there's something to this thing, you know. All right, number four. We suffer to develop our capacity and sympathy in comforting others. This is an important one that I don't know that we think of all that often. But look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. That's God. Watch. Who comforts us in all our affliction. So that, for the purpose of, we may comfort those who are in any affliction. God comforts us so we can comfort others. Well, He couldn't comfort you if you weren't in affliction. And then you wouldn't be able to comfort others who are in affliction. And I think one of the ways that God comforts us in affliction is by other believers. Other believers. They come alongside and they encourage. It's going to be all right. They tell you things you already know. God is still sovereign. You need to hear that in in the trials. Because you know it, but you're not thinking about it, okay? You're thinking about everything you see and you forget that stuff. But I really believe that's how God does this. He brings along, and this, people, this is why the, the ministry of the saints coming together is so important. We need one another to lift one another up, to encourage one another, to support one another. He says, with the comfort, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It's just, it gives us opportunities, people. And I think that's, you know, sometimes you wonder, why are they suffering? Maybe they're suffering because God wants you to go comfort them. He wants you to be used to minister the Word of God to them, to come alongside to help them. And sometimes it's not even saying anything to the believer. It's just being there. Just show up and sit there. Let them know you care. So too often we try to fix people. They don't need fixed. They just need comfort. Okay? Just need comfort. Just let them know. Someone knows what they're going through. Someone's there for them. Number five, we suffer to keep down pride. Uh, this doesn't really apply to any of us, so let's keep moving. <laughs> Second Corinthians 12.7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, 
This is Paul, okay? This is Paul. I think he's one of the greatest Christians that ever walked the face of the earth, okay? And he says, well, I didn't want to get conceited and to keep me from that. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, because of all God is showing him, all God is doing, he says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a physical problem, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul sees his physical problems as, hey, God's keeping me humble here. Is that a good thing? It's a really good thing since God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because now Paul says, it keeps me from becoming conceited. I keep getting grace from God. I keep getting grace. God, it's amazing. Let me tell you something. (laughs) I thank God for the 15 people that are here. Because it keeps me humble. Seriously. Because I've seen, I was on staff at a church, and the church literally blew up numbers-wise. And that guy got such a big head, He's out of the ministry. He got such a big guy because he just thought he could do anything. So he had sex with the secretary because, you know, that's what he deserves for all he's gotten, you know. And he's out and he's done and he destroys the church. But, you know, God keeps me humble. When I spend all week pouring over the scriptures and digging and I come home and there's 15 people, I'm like, I'm not anybody special, you know. Uh, now, the online people really help in the encouragement to know there's other people watching too and it goes online so other people can see it later. That all plays into the fact, but, but it is a humbling thing, you know? And I drive by a building and, you know, they've got a multi-billion dollar project and I'm like, we're meeting in the storefront and I'm so thankful for it. Because more than anything else, if God can keep me humble, that's the, that's the place to be. Because I'm in a position of grace, okay? Because pride is, pride is, I don't... Eh, you know, when it says God resists the proud, the word he uses there is that God puts on the battle array. He fights the proud. I don't want to be in that position, okay, ever. I don't want to be, do battle with God. That's a losing proposition there, people, okay? Absolutely. So there's a lot of reasons the Bible gives that God sends suffering into our lives. But the supreme reason, the ultimate reason, the reason of all reasons is... We suffer to bring glory to God. Yeshua taught His disciples this lesson in John chapter 9. He passed by and He saw a man blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or His parents? That He was born blind. So where's their theology? What do you think? Well, if you got a problem in your life, you must be sinning, Right? Either the disciples never read Job or never really studied it, you know. They didn't understand what it was about because their false assumption was that there must have been a terrible sin to warrant this man's blindness. But Yeshua corrects their misunderstanding by teaching that the suffering is not a result of personal sin. Yeshua answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why, that's the whole situation. He tells that this man was blind, not because either he or his parents sinned, but rather so God could be glorified in this man's life. And here's where we find comfort in our suffering. It's not an isolated case where suffering served the purpose. Suffering serves to bring glory to God. So you don't have to worry. Well, something weird happened. No, God's still in control. He's got His hand on the whole situation. It's designed 
in your life to bring glory to Him. And Yeshua tells them that man was blind, not because his parents, so God could be glorified. When you're in the midst of suffering, we need to remember that in an ultimate sense, all is right in the world. God's still on the throne. He knows what He's doing. Things are operating as they should. Not one thing happens in our lives that God has not planned, that God has not caused to happen. But when we're in the midst of a trial, it can be difficult to celebrate the glory of God. Because when we're hurting, we tend to be rather self-consumed. And we find it difficult to say with much sincerity, I sure am glad this disaster in my life is glorifying you. Lord, please let me know anytime I can suffer to bring you glory. Kind of hard to say that, isn't it? But that's what, that's what should be our response. But we don't like it, so we get bent out of shape, and maybe we don't have the people coming around to comfort us that we should. So Paul says in verse 5, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you're suffering. And then in the next couple of verses, he's going to tell them this suffering is going to end. God's going to deal with this. So what I think Paul is saying is here, your endurance in the midst of suffering is evidence of God's righteous judgment that will be displayed at the parousia, when it will be manifest that you are my sons and your enemies will be destroyed. Your endurance in suffering demonstrates that you're worthy of the kingdom of God. Listen, these people at Thessalonica, they're abiding in Christ. They're living as disciples of Christ. The more the persecution comes, the more their faith is growing and their love for one another is abounding. And he's got nothing but good things to say about these people. But in the midst of this, in the midst of all the suffering you're dealing with, and their suffering wasn't slight. He said it was the same suffering as those in Judea were suffering. Well, there they were dying, they were being stoned, they were being persecuted, and they were being whipped. That was happening. So these people are really suffering. But he says, don't worry. Things are going to be taken care of. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us, Lord. Father, there's so much misery in our life simply because we don't know you. Lord, help us to understand the the importance, the power of theology proper to understand our God and live in a submissive relationship to him. Lord, I thank you for your incredible love for us. I thank you for giving us the Word of God, for providing so many opportunities for us. May we be faithful Bereans, Lord, to seek to serve you in the midst of suffering, that we would endure, that we would bring glory to your name through the things that we suffer. We love you, Father. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Well, that's possible, and people, you know, again, we have to understand that, yeah, Paul didn't want to be disqualified from ministry. He, he never talked about being disqualified from salvation. That's the thing. Paul's so strong on that. You know, people, if obedience is important. 
Write that down. It's important. It's not going to get you into heaven. It'll make life here wonderful. It just will make it wonderful. Again, look at the Israelites. As you're reading through your Bible, look at the Israelites. Look at their, their stupidity. Their, you know, I mean, good gracious. The ground opens up and swallows Korah and his people and closes up. And the Israelites say, hey, Moses, what did you do that for? Moses, I'd say if I did that, it's happening again right now. I'm swallowing you up. How stupid are you people? No matter what God did for them, no matter what he gave them, they just tend to walk away. That's why Paul praises God for the Thessalonians' endurance. It's the work of God. But I'll tell you what, when we take the word of God and put it into our lives, the Holy Spirit has a handle to guide and steer us. He uses the word of God. So to be controlled by the Spirit is to have the word of God dwelling in you. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18. They're parallel passages. The Word of God, the Spirit of God. But it comes to the Word, people. We've got to be people of the Word. <laughs> Anthony says, Pastor, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. God knows. God knows man. Exactly. That encouraged me so much. Thank you. Thank God for that I needed for BTS. I don't know what BTS is. I needed to practice very much. I don't know what that means behind the scenes. I don't know. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate it, brother. Maybe. We'll have to make up. We can make up whatever we want since we don't know, right? From Norm. David, that was terrific. In the exegesis of this passage, I heard the complete gospel. Amen, brother. Not only the sovereignty of God, but the discovery of the gift of saving faith. Thank you. Amen. You know, that the gospel is there, no doubt, because that's what it's about. Those who serve the gospel, those who follow the gospel, God blesses. Those who don't, God judges. Jeff? Back to the G.K. Beale quote, the whole faith and works argument type thing. Do you think it adds to that... Persons of people's opinions that you know Matthew 25 and the Great White Throne, that the entire judgment is based on works and has nothing to do with faith, that they might add that. I mean, well, that's judgment of unbelievers, you know. But yeah, well, I mean, the sheep and the goat right. were both judged on, as Keith Green said, what right. they did and didn't do. Yeah. Well, again, there are definitely passages that make you think. Well, we got to do this, but I, it's a let me just say it's a misunderstanding of that passage. It's like James, everybody goes to James too. Oh, faith without works is dead, and you know the devil trembles, and we got to. You don't want to understand what James is talking about. James is not arguing with Paul. He doesn't have a different opinion. So, yes, there are scriptures that make people think, well, if we don't obey, we don't get in. You got to, again, you go from the things that are clear, and Paul is really clear that justification is by faith alone. He's so clear on that. Him and James aren't battling each other, okay? We have to take the whole of Scripture and understand it in context. That's so important. I understand that people hold different ideas because they see a Scripture and they think that's what that Scripture means. Well, does it is the question. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I think everybody that holds some theology gets it, at least they think, from the Bible. So, yes, I just think this this whole idea of works... To get you into heaven are just 
I think they're just a slap in the face to God. He sent His Son to die for us. And just like the Catholics, yes, Christ died on the cross for us, we have to believe in Him. But it's not enough. You have to add to that your good works. I'm not adding anything, okay? (laughs) Because I can't. I'm just thankful for the grace of God. And my assurance comes based on what the Word of God says, not how I live, okay? But I, you know, I desire to live a godly, holy life because it pleases God and it makes life so beautiful. <laughs> I mean, walking in fellowship with the Creator, is, there's nothing in the world as good as that. But somehow sin seems to tempt us so much that it's, it's just really sad because the, the payment that sin is a rough taskmaster and the payment is always horrendous. So it's just so much better just to follow God. Yes. I always think about the um, uh, the new covenant, like in, where it's written in Jeremiah, after those days, which is what this is all about, you know, that I'm so that's right uh, enamored with. Um, but you know, I will be their God; they will be my people. He's going to write the law of God on our hearts. You look at every clause of that new covenant. We don't have. There's nothing that we do. He has done it all. Well, that's the thing to me about the Abrahamic covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. God made the covenant with Abraham said, here's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do, Abraham? No, Abraham had no part in that covenant. Abraham was asleep. <laughs> He's laying there. God walked through the pieces himself. God made the covenant. Here's what I'm going to do, Abraham. And see, we're children of Abraham by faith in Christ. It's a unilateral covenant. God called certain people, his children, to himself. He made a covenant with them. And he fulfills the covenant in himself. But he does call us to be holy and righteous in this life, to be image bearers for him. Uh, Junior says, Mom drove from Montreal to visit us in Niagara Falls, sat down with us from today's message, she says, hi, Pastor Dave. Great sermon. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Junior, tell your mom. I said, thanks. Appreciate you guys watching. Niagara Falls, are you Are you that? that are, I know you're in Canada, but are you in that? We used to go, to, my wife and I went to Niagara Falls all the time. We lived in Erie, Pennsylvania. Again, that's before you needed passports. We used to drive up there all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple times I got my car searched because they thought this guy's up to no good, but they never found anything. But yeah, we, mm-hmm. we used to go to the Canadian side. Because if you ever been in Niagara Falls, the American side, yeah, it's okay. Go to the Canadian side. It's just you want to you want to really see it. It's it's just the, and when you even get close, you hear the falls point. It's just amazing. It's a it's an amazing sight. It really is. And then you got dumb people trying to go over it in barrels and stuff. <laughs> and some of them live. 